So I feel like people are done with politics, and I feel bad that we're bringing people back into politics, but it's for a good reason. I just think about this year, and it's been both a shitty and an awesome political year. I mean, obviously, there are so many examples of bad politicians that have been disheartening this year, but I think it's also meant silver lining that people have really stepped up and are demanding the things that we've needed to change for a really long time. And it feels like these things might actually happen. And so that's the the one positive takeaway, I would say, is people feel invigorated and energized to actually make long-term change. Yeah, I. it's been incredible to see people in the streets protesting, getting ready for the election. Obviously, we worked with Four Freedoms, and they were entirely about civic joy and making it fun to participate in our democracy. And getting rid of Trump, I I mean, I even hate saying his name. I don't want to give him any more brain space. But oh my God, what a joy. Yeah, I think there was a collective sigh of relief, but I also want us to remember this fervor and this fight that we all had in us this year and not be complacent just because we have a new person in office starting in 2021. The truth is, is that's a Band-Aid until we actually create real systems change. And I hope that we go into 2021 with that same sort of energy and invigoration and that motivation to really make change and that we don't lose sight of the fight that we've all been a part of for this last year. And that, you know, it's been so incredible to see people take to the streets and you can't ignore what's going on. And the whole world was watching as we were having these moments. And I think there was something really special about us when in a year where we felt like we really didn't have a sense of community because we were all in our little bubbles and isolated and, you know, indoors because of the pandemic, we came together in other new and different ways. And I want us, I want that to, to last. I want us to still have that that energy in 2021 and beyond. I'm Erin Always. And I'm Melody Serafino. And this is the Enough Podcast. This week, we know we have more than enough people who are ready for change. And we've had enough of the gatekeepers who are putting profits over the planet. I feel so lucky that I accidentally ended up in politics. I had zero desire to work for a member of Congress. I just happened to meet Earl Blumenauer, who is the next guest on Enough. And he's been a congressman now for over two decades. He's a congressman from Portland, Oregon, and he hired me as his communications director. It is the best learning experience that I've had in my entire life. I'd love to share a personal anecdote about Earl, especially as a man on Capitol Hill, a white man, who is the ultimate ally. I, when I was working for him at 25, I was attacked in DC and uh, nothing happened. Thankfully, I fought this person off, but Earl found out about it. And I I didn't tell him, but my chief of staff did. And Earl pulled me aside and said, I, I heard what happened. And I said, oh, you know, nothing happened. And he said, something did happen. And I just remember him then Without telling me, I heard this through another staff member, he wrote to Nancy Pelosi and insisted that every staffer on Capitol Hill have access to self-defense training. And he didn't do it for attention. He didn't even tell me. And I think about that. And I want everyone to know that there are examples of really good people on Capitol Hill. And I've never forgotten that. And I don't even know if he remembers doing that. But I just have to share that here because 
It's really moving. And that's how to be a good ally. And I will say one other allyship action of his, he always reaches out to new members of Congress. And his love of the squad, Melody, is it's awesome. He talks about that a lot. And he authored the Green New Deal with AOC, who I think is probably the coolest member of Congress. I really hope that in 2021, the Green New Deal is a top priority and a top topic of conversation, not just in political spheres, but with all of us who care about the state of the planet and care about the future of this place that we live. Uh, we It is not something that we can ignore. It is so vital to ensuring that we continue to have a healthy environment and that this planet lives on for generations. I also just love that it's called the Green New Deal. It's so optimistic. And I... The last thing that I worked on on the Hill was climate legislation that passed the House and failed in the Senate. So let's make 2021 the year that we actually get this done for future generations. I got started in this business in college, working on the campaign to lower the voting age, both on an Oregon ballot measure and on the national constitutional amendment. And it was just something that carried over. I concentrated on state and local government for a number of years. Uh, it's been very rewarding working on livable communities, transportation, affordable housing, uh, environmental protections, agriculture. But after the Gingrich takeover of Congress, it became clear that a lot of the attention needed to be focused on making Congress a productive partner rather than a disruptive agent. The Republican approach to Congress for 25 years has been one of destruction, disruption, uh, and minimizing the impact. It was fiercely ideological uh, and I think uh, tragic. We continue to focus on things that don't have to be partisan. I felt then and I feel now that there's a wide variety of things we can do using the platform of Congress to be able to give people an element of reform that doesn't have to be expensive, doesn't have to be polarizing, doesn't have to be partisan, uh, but just simply makes sense in terms of giving people the quality of government that they want and deserve. I am pleased with the focus. I am frustrated how hard it's been. Uh, but there are things that we are able to do and that we're looking forward with a Biden administration to be able to make some significant progress at a time when it's never been more important. Yeah. And I mean, and just focusing on the environment alone, because there's been so much destruction, not only to the planet in the last four years, but also environmental protections under Trump. I want to go back to what lit a fire under you to really focus on the environment. I mean, you've been a leader on this issue for so long, and you've been in Congress long enough to see something go from being a fringe topic. I mean, people didn't believe in global warming. Some still don't. But it is a mainstream conversation now. And, and I'm curious, how did you become an environmentalist? You know, what, what fired you up to take on that fight? Well, Aaron, you know I'm an Oregonian. And that's in our DNA. I was in college for the first Earth Day. I was in the Oregon legislature when we passed the first comprehensive legislation dealing with land use planning. I uh, was on the Portland City Council when we were the first city in America to establish enforceable goals for carbon reduction. 
It's just been part of what I've seen us do in my community and my state throughout my public service career. And it has only been more and more imperative that we take action. What we have seen in terms of climate disruption, extreme weather events, I mean, we had uh, experience together trying to have Congress provide a more constructive response to Katrina, um, which is just a preview. Uh, what happened to your hometown is a preview of what we're going to see, the massive wildfires in Australia, in the Pacific Northwest this last summer. We burned more acreage in three days than we usually lose in two years to forest fires. A million acres up in smoke. What we're seeing with extreme weather events, flooding, more intense storms, this is a wake-up call for the planet, and it's something that we in Oregon have been working on literally for decades. Now I am pleased that there is more focus on how important it is, how urgent it is, and in fact, that there are things that we can do that will make a difference. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually started working for you one year after Hurricane Katrina hit. And I often think about how if that happened today, I don't know if there would be the same amount of attention on it because we've become so accustomed to these climate disasters. The fire in Oregon this summer was so heartbreaking to watch. I know you had the worst air quality in the world during that time. And what was it like to deal with that response while also understanding we had to pull back and look at the bigger picture of taking on climate change? Well, it's, it is frustrating that people are so slow to understand the implications of climate and the fact that every day we are making extreme weather events like we have witnessed uh, to be more likely and to make them more intense. As you referenced, for three days in the summer of 2020, Portland had the worst air quality of any major city in the entire world. We've watched what's taking place in terms of continued coastal erosion. These are all elements uh, as we watch land sink in Louisiana and Florida, as we watch the habitat for threatened species to be more and more limited. When we saw extreme weather events in Siberia and the Arctic, it's a signal that time is short. We're not going to be able to reverse the worst of climate change, but we'll be able to slow its impact. We'll be able to manage it better, and we'll be able to implement programs that we know will make a difference. If we don't make that pivot and do it now, treating it like the climate emergency that it is, these events are gonna be commonplace, more people are going to die. We're going to have more disruption, uh, food chain. I mean, all of the things that were considered a little science fiction-y 25 years ago, people see acting out in real time right now. This is on track to be the hottest year in our history. And we're just setting one record after another in ways that have horrific consequences. Yeah. I mean, Earl, I, I have to say one of the things that I often think about when I reflect on your career is you have been beating the drum about climate change since, as you said, the first Earth Day. 
one, I want to hear about what that first Earth Day was like. And two, how do you have the stamina to keep beating that drum when there have been so many people denying climate change or really putting up barriers to take this on in a way that we can address the problems? Well, the first Earth Day was in the context of other massive efforts at student activism. The efforts to try and stop the war in Vietnam you know, engaged an entire generation. And Earth Day was the largest environmental demonstration in the history of the planet. It was global in scope. And it was really encouraging to see so many people committed to protecting our fragile planet. For me, watching the progress, I understand we've got real problems that continue in some cases to uh, defy adequate response. We've seen the federal government be, let's just say, an inconsistent partner. There are some climate policies that uh, I'm pleased are still on the books that haven't been reversed by Donald Trump, although a number of them have been undermined. But we haven't had the full-throated, comprehensive effort to implement those policies. I am hopeful that what we're going to see with the Biden administration, with this renewed activism, particularly by young people, that we're going to be able to see more concerted action. And one of the things that's most important, and you and I have talked about this, Aaron, is that we're watching now the interrelationships becoming more and more clear. Environmental justice, what we're going to do in terms of health disparities, and problems with the criminal justice system. These are all areas that we're seeing the COVID crisis and the exploding impacts of climate to put them in the spotlight, to have people understand that they are more urgent and that they are all interconnected. We're not going to be able to adequately combat the massive carbon pollution unless we come to grips with our food production system. 37% of greenhouse gas emissions are part of agriculture. And in, as it's practiced in the United States, it's very carbon intense. We use a lot of petrochemicals for pesticides, fertilizers. The way that we choose uh, to plow the land sadly releases too much carbon into the atmosphere. How we choose to have a billion and a half dairy cows and beef cattle that by themselves would be one of the largest sources of carbon emissions in the world. All of these things are knit together in terms of how we're going to respond in the agricultural sector, how we deal with the fact that the American government subsidizes a diet that literally is making Americans sick. It's not just carbon intense, but it is undermining basic health of Americans. Uh, our lavish subsidies of commodity production, soybeans, corn, how we subsidize industrial meat production, which is not healthy for the planet. It's horrible in terms of animal welfare. And it has serious consequences in terms of more carbon and water pollution. I see these things coming together. I find it encouraging 
that more and more people are looking at this comprehensively. And as we look at it comprehensively, there are more avenues for people to be involved constructively. What does it look like for people to be involved constructively right now beyond protesting in the streets, which we've seen that happening in the last year following George Floyd's murder in advance of the election? It's really been remarkable to see this level of civic engagement, which I hear coming from you, too, as you reflect on the first Earth Day. But what do we have to do to keep pressure on so that we are addressing these greater systems of human health, planetary health? food systems? You know, what can we do for not in Congress? Well, one of the things that's important is for us to be able to harness this massive energy that has been focused on the cry for racial, economic, and health justice. But it's important that we pivot this to the political process. You only get so far with street demonstrations. You get a lot further if we impact what happens in the political process. The two Senate elections in Georgia are going to be decided by the narrowest of margins. If we can concentrate this time and energy to encourage people who are not regular voters to be able to turn out in these two Senate races in Georgia, it can have profound consequences for President-elect Biden to be able to have congressional partnership, to be able to act. It's imperative that people do not get diverted going down rabbit holes that are not productive. This is all about being able to save the democracy and be able to empower Congress and the new administration to do things that are overwhelmingly supported by the American public. Earl, you were talking about this energy that we need to harness. And I have to say, you made me see Congress in a different way. I see that there are real advocates on Capitol Hill. And I feel like for this next generation, no one has done more to make us see the power of what Congress can do and get young people excited than AOC. And you worked with AOC to author the Green New Deal I would love for you to tell me about that process and what it has been like having someone like her on Capitol Hill really igniting this fire under young people in a way that we haven't seen. Well, having non-traditional spokespeople makes all the difference in the world. And I will say AOC was a breath of fresh air. Frankly, I work with the squad. Ayanna Presley from Boston is phenomenal on things that you and I used to work on in terms of livable communities and bicycles and being able to have cities function for the people who live in them. Rashida Tlaib working on housing justice. One of the things that is overlooked, sadly, is that one of the greatest areas of economic and health disparities is to be found in the blatant discrimination that the federal government shown for Black and other Americans of color, shutting them out literally of the housing market, which denied them the access to wealth generation, that is home ownership. Housing is education policy. Nothing gives you greater predictive power of a child's success in school than where he or she lives. A decent house 
in a, a neighborhood that functions uh, makes all the difference in the world in predicting where they're going to be able to thrive, uh, much more so than student-teacher ratio or how much we invest in them on an ongoing basis. Being able to work with the squad, work with some of these new members of Congress who understand the connections and tapping into that extra energy, I think is really important. We need to make sure that we work to find the issue that animates everybody. Everybody cares about something. Everybody has a role to play in our being able to deal with the climate crisis, with the crisis in racial justice, uh, the crisis in health disparity, nutrition. They're all part of this equation, and everybody has a role to play. One of the last pieces of legislation I worked on with you when I was in your office was comprehensive climate legislation. And it passed the House, I believe, by one vote, Lloyd Doggett in Texas, right? And and then it didn't pass the Senate. It didn't go anywhere. And it's just sort of heartbreaking. I think that that was the moment, and I don't know if I've ever told you this, I think that that was the moment where I just was done. I was so broken by the system and, and thought that it would pass. And, and I realized, you know, this is a fight that has to keep going for a long time. And I think about climate and the potential we have now that we have to take on now with Biden in office, what can we do to force us to pay attention and to keep on with comprehensive climate legislation? Uh, community dialogue uh, on how we, what foods we eat, how it's produced, transportation, land use, water. There are no acts that are too small. It's going to be the cumulative effect where the public will be able to change the trajectory. And we've got about 10 years to be able to get the carbon emissions under control so that uh, children and grandchildren uh, will have some hint of a normal future. But the good news is that we're watching those changes take place. We're watching consumers supporting business practices that are climate friendly. The House passed a transportation bill that I think will be the foundation for the Biden infrastructure program that has so many elements there that are uh, low carbon and have broad support. There's, there's uh, net zero concrete. Concrete is intensely uh, carbon intense uh, for its production, but there are ways that we can actually uh, create concrete that doesn't have those impacts. What's happening in terms of uh, alternatives to industrial meat production makes a huge difference. And the, the cumulative effects of how we move, where we live, what we eat, how it's produced, are the sorts of things that are going to end up making the difference in carbon pollution that will give us a future that we can survive. Yeah, and I feel like that's the thing that I just want to continue to remind people of is that every decision is an opportunity to really make a difference, be it how you vote for your member of Congress, local legislators, and then also restaurants where we choose to go. I keep thinking, you know, the second guest we had on the podcast, Camilla Ruth Marcus, she opened one of the first zero waste restaurants. They reused all of the food, 
remarkable. She had to close her restaurant because of the pandemic and because there there was no safety net for her. And now she's tirelessly fighting and doing what she can to fight for our restaurants. I, I do want to hear about the Restaurants Act, Earl, and, and what you're doing there with Colicchio and with Danny Meyer and Jose Andres. Well, we've been working with leaders uh, from the independent restaurant industry for years in terms of sustainably produced product. But when the pandemic hit, it hit independent restaurants harder than any other sector. They have seen the greatest amount of job loss of any economic sector in the country. These restaurants are the anchors of our neighborhoods. And because there was such a massive amount of job loss, uh, I started working with our independent restaurants, which, as you know, really defined my hometown of Portland, Oregon, and uh, the food scene throughout Oregon, because they didn't have a program that worked for them. There was a paycheck protection program that was a lifeline for some small business, although we saw, sadly, that too much of those resources went to big boys and girls that really didn't need it. But it was singularly ill-equipped to help the problems of an independent restaurant. Uh, They didn't even know if they would be in business in eight weeks, let alone be able to undertake more debt. It was designed to keep people on payrolls, but because the restaurants were uniquely restricted in terms of what they could do, their footprint was reduced uh, 60, 70, 80, 90%, and they couldn't maintain their business based on those limitations. So we worked with the independent restaurants to design a program that would work. It would provide direct grants to enable them to stay in business based on what revenues they had in 2019 before the pandemic hit. We need to be able to focus more attention on a few people that are standing in the way. I mean, the restaurants bill that we introduced has already passed the House of Representatives, and it's in the Senate as part of the HEROES Act. Uh, We have a companion bill for the Senate. Half the Senate has co-sponsored the bill. Sadly, it is not getting the support from Marco Rubio, who chairs the Small Business Committee, who is fixated on uh, his PPP program that didn't work for restaurants when it was introduced and still doesn't work. Earl, you mentioned Marco Rubio. Are there others who are holding this up? And I'm, I'm only asking you because part of our podcast, I mean, the whole point is to give people actionable things to do. And we want to be calling members of Congress who are holding things up. And so, you know, if it's not calling members of Congress, what can we be doing? And if it is, whose phones do we need to be ringing right now? If we actually got the attention, somebody in Rubio's office or uh, Susan Collins, focusing on making whatever they do meet the unique needs of an independent restaurant. They don't need more loans uh, with complex repayment requirements. What they need are direct grants to be able to stay in business in this period of uncertainty. Restaurants need grants, not loans. Well, Earl, I have just one more question for you because I could really talk to you for hours. And 
my question is, we're looking to leave 2020 behind and move into 2021. What is the thing that you've had enough of? Well, there's so many candidates <laughs> right? for answers to that question. But one of the things that gave me greatest satisfaction in 2020 is the progress we've been making to end the failed war on drugs, be able to have cannabis legalization and a different approach to deal with substance abuse. On the heels of that, I'm feeling extremely inspired to call my representatives, and not just my representatives, but other representatives who might be holding up policy and legislation that reflects my values, and understanding that there's real power in that, holding other people accountable and responsible. Every member of Congress has a website, and you can find their numbers. And here's the fun thing. They have multiple numbers. They have their district office. They have their Capitol Hill office. Call them all. What else are you doing? And definitely, definitely sign up to call Georgia voters, too, because if we don't take the Senate, we're also fucked. <laughs> that race is so critical. There are so many ways to get involved. We actually have a link within our show notes that links to phone banking time slots where you can sign up to volunteer. I'm definitely going to be spending the first few days of 2021 calling Georgia voters. And I think what a powerful way to start the new year. We get what we put into Washington, right? Like the legislation that comes out of it, the people who work there. If it seems like a job that nobody wants, we're going to get terrible people working in politics and we're going to get terrible legislation. So I, I, I especially think coming out of a recession and this tough time we're going to go into, I hope young people look to Washington as an opportunity to enact their values. Like you don't have to go to a nonprofit. You don't have to go anywhere but into either the State Department or the EPA. Go and do that work. Run for local office. And I have to give a shout out to an organization called Govern for America. Look them up. It is two young women who are making it possible for young people to have access to jobs in public service. And I think that they're doing exactly what I've wanted for so long, which is let's make it cool to work in Washington and in policy. Thanks for listening to Enough. As always, you can find links to Earl's work, the Georgia election, number 29, and the Enough newsletter in our show notes. Enough is a podcast from number 29 and Pineapple Street Studios. It's produced by Natalie Brennan and Sophie Bridges. Pineapple's executive producers are Max Linsky and Jenna Weiss-Berman. Original composition by Hannes Brown. See you next week. <laughs>